Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Friday, September the 28th. This week, more on the upcoming US election and health policy and epilepsy. In the Lancet this week, we've published a two-part series looking at various aspects of epilepsy, very much an overlooked neurological problem, with our lead editorial in the Lancet this week calling for epilepsy to be taken much more seriously by governments worldwide. Also to mention this is very much a shared initiative between the Lancet Weekly Journal and the Lancet Neurology. The September issue of the Lancet Neurology, which has been available for a few weeks, is a themed epilepsy issue and it's all tied up with a special epilepsy conference taking place in London over the next few days. Check out the special webpage on thelancet.com and a little later my colleague Nikolai Humphreys will be interviewing one of the authors of those twin series papers that is Professor Charles Newton concerning epilepsy in low and middle income countries. But first more on the momentum that's building up to the United States election in early November. In the World Report in The Lancet this week Susan Jaffe compares and contrasts the health policies of President Barack Obama and the Republican candidate for the presidency Mitt Romney. Earlier I spoke to Susan Jaffe to find out more. Susan Jaffe, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. You're on the line from Washington, D.C., which is a pretty handy place to be, given that we're talking about differences, similarities, contrasts in health policies between the two presidential candidates, the incumbent Barack Obama and obviously the uh, Republican Mitt Romney as well. Before we get into some of that detail, Susan, can we start with the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, because this really is so central to the future current and future health policy of the United States. This is landmark legislation that has been brought in under President Obama's watch. Can you just briefly summarize what this legislation is setting out to do and its very rough timetable? It's really hard to underestimate what this means to Barack Obama. It is his signature landmark legislation. It is something that no Congress and no president has been able to do for nearly a century. Others have tried. Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, and and Bill Clinton, and they all failed. But Obama got this through, and it is a really uh, massive piece of legislation, which, uh, according to, you know, the Republicans will say that's one of its faults. The Democrats will say no. It's comprehensive. It's kind of a jigsaw puzzle. I'll give you just some of the highlights. It sets up new requirements for insurance companies. They can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. They can't charge women higher rates. They can't drop your coverage when you get sick. They can't limit coverage when you hit a certain amount. It creates financial incentives for providers to improve Medicare and other government health programs so, so that Medicare is, you know, has been, is our government uh, program for people over 65. Basically, one of the criticisms of Medicare is that it's really a sick care system. It pays bills. It doesn't keep necessarily keep people well. So the Affordable Care Act provides new preventive health benefits for the elderly, annual wellness exams, and changes a little bit about how providers are paid instead of for individual services. There's experiments going on to bundle payments among providers, set up accountable care organizations. Aside from the changes in Medicare, starting in 2014, it will create these uh, state-based health insurance marketplaces, 
where um, insurance will be sold. Insurers have to provide a certain essential benefits, including maternity care, which uh, some in, in the individual market now, if, uh, there are very few insurers that will cover maternity care. The law says that every individual in the United States has to carry health insurance. Employers with, with 50 or more em- employees have to provide coverage to their employees or pay a penalty. Individuals who don't buy their own health insurance have to pay a penalty. Thank you, Susan. It's very comprehensive. And I should have said at the top of the podcast, the whole objective of the Affordable Care Act is, of course, to extend coverage. Can you just comment briefly on that? Absolutely. The law is expected to insure about 32 million people, or roughly uh, about half of those who would be uninsured by 2020. There's some doubt now as to how many will gain coverage because the Supreme Court ruled in June that actually one of the only provisions that they objected to was a provision that would require states to expand their Medicaid program. About half of the people gaining uh, in, in health insurance under the Affordable Care Act would be getting coverage through Medicaid. Medicaid is, is a program for low-income families, and in some states they will cover single adults, but very few do. The Affordable Care Act tells states to expand coverage, let more people into the program, and the federal government will pay the states for those new members of Medicaid. Right now, for every Medicaid dollar a state spends, the the federal government will will chip in another, an average of about 50% more. It varies by state, as do the current uh, Medicaid benefits and uh, Medicaid eligibility requirements. It's really a patchwork from state to state. The Affordable Care Act said... If you expand your Medicaid enrollment, we will pay 100%, not half, 100% of the cost of the new enrollees for three years, and then at that point the states would chip in just 10% of the cost. About 15 to 17 million people would get coverage. If Mitt Romney wins the election in early November... What is he going to do to the Affordable Care Act on day one? Has he already announced that he's going to repeal it? He has said he's going to repeal it. However, he doesn't have a vote in Congress. He can't actually repeal it. As president, he can issue an executive order telling states they are exempt from the law. They don't have to set up these health insurance exchanges. They don't have to do anything. He will work with Congress, he says, on legislation to replace the Affordable Care Act. But if Democrats retain their majority in the Senate, as many people here expect, it could be very difficult for Romney to get a repeal bill through Congress and to his desk to sign. It's difficult to really know where Romney goes from there if he, if he doesn't get a law approved by Congress to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, then he has to sort of do it bit by bit. What he will keep and what he will scrap is a matter of debate at this point. He hasn't been very specific, and in my interviews with the 
campaign, they were a little difficult to nail down on, on this point. It's political dynamite, presumably, to, to even comment on it, because apart from anything else, undoing the work of the, all of the work of the ACA would just be an enormous costly thing to do anyway, even if you wanted to get rid of all of it. Right, and because the pieces are, are, are so interdependent, if, uh, he, he's, he said that um, he likes the provision. He said uh, uh, in, a, in a recent television interview that he doesn't want to get rid of all of health reform. In his replacement plan, he would keep uh, the provision that says insurance companies cannot discriminate against people with pre-existing health conditions as long as they maintain continuous coverage. However, that only would apply to people who are already in a policy. They develop uh, a, a serious illness, uh, they, um, and he would say he would require the insurance companies not to drop that person when the cost of their care goes up. That is part of the Affordable Care Act now, but also there's another provision that says for people applying brand new who don't have health insurance because in the past they were turned down because they had cancer or some, you know, expensive chronic disease, the insurance companies starting in 2014 would have to take that person. From a philosophical point of view, Romney wants more free enterprise, more free market enterprise within the health system, whereas the ACA is calling for a more sort of federal kind of health insurance program that's going to be coming in in 2014 from what you said earlier the difference between the two yeah very broadly as some of my stories have have pointed out obama's health reform system depends a lot on government oversight government regulation most importantly uh government support uh, to the states who are setting up these health insurance exchanges and then to people who are eligible for, for subsidies and, st and tax credits. Romney really takes a different stance. He does not want to expand government. He does not want health care dictated by a federal government. He thinks that states can do a better job, and he thinks that individuals should be uh, have the freedom to buy their own insurance when when they want to buy insurance and one uh, example of that is in the medicare program for the elderly he uh would give uh seniors uh an opportunity to op to opt out of the government program completely they would get a voucher from the federal government to go out into the private insurance market and buy their own insurance um romney says that you know, insurance companies would compete for their business by offering attractive benefits and low costs. Democrats have said this is a voucher system. Republicans call it premium support. Um, the problem for, for Democrats is that the voucher doesn't keep pace with the cost, of, rising cost of medical care, and so it will buy less and less coverage over time. Some clear distinctions there. What about women, women's health? That's an important political issue. How are Obama and Romney on women and the health of women? There are provisions in the Affordable Care Act that provide a set of preventive health benefits for all patients, but also it directed the Department of, of Health and Human Services to examine what additional preventive health benefits 
women needed, and um, they added benefits, including the most controversial of these was all methods of birth control approved by the uh, U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and that would be part of the uh, insurance plans uh, offered through the state exchanges and required by employers. Romney has said, as an example of this kind of government-run health system that he objects to, he said that employers should not have to pay uh, have to have to offer uh, birth control. I, I should back up for a second and say that the preventive health benefits in the Affordable Care Act both added these benefits in the Medicare program for the elderly and for people under 65 in, with private insurance through their employers. That this provision uh, said that these preventive health benefits should be offered without cost sharing. The insurer would bear the full cost of these benefits. They may pass on some of the costs in the, in the form of monthly premiums. The legislation really wanted to ensure that people would go out and get preventive health care to stay healthy even before well, they as, get as, Of course, as part of an obvious you know, health strategy, it, rather than ending up with a big sick bill, prevent the illness in the first place if you can. We must draw to a close, Susan. It's a really fascinating topic, obviously, and, and your World Report piece is a great read and we'll obviously be covering more on the election as we lead up to that big evening night Tuesday the 6th of November final question Susan it may seem a bit of an obtuse question but one thought I had being an ignorant Englishman three and a half thousand miles away from Washington DC is there any chance given that the domestic economy in the United States is clearly at the heart of people's feelings as to how they're going to vote is there any threat that that the Affordable Care Act and therefore the fact that there, there could be a perception that there's an enormous amount of public expenditure needs to be spent to extend health coverage. Even if people think that extending health coverage is a good thing, they're going to see it's going to be, have to be public finance through federal government programs. Is there any danger to the Obama camp that people may just think, you know, that's a great idea, but we can't afford it? There's actually at least two sides to the argument on cost that you know, the, the Republicans will, will say we can't afford it. The Democrats will say we can't afford not to do it. Interesting points. Well, it'll be interesting to see how well those arguments are communicated because obviously from the Democrats' perspective and the Affordable Care Act, it's about investing in the health of the nation that can offset the costs later on, clearly. But that's that point's well made. Susan, it's been great to talk to you. Many thanks indeed for your time on the line from, of course, the capital, Washington, D.C., and look forward to speaking to you again. Great. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Susan Jaffe. And now let's hear more about epilepsy I mentioned at the top of the podcast. My colleague Nikolai Humphreys has been speaking to one of the authors of a series paper in The Lancet this week, Charles Newton, on his paper concerning epilepsy in low- and middle-income settings. Could I start by asking you to define the problem? How big is the burden of epilepsy in low- and middle-income countries? Well, I think the burden is enormous. Um, In our paper, we've uh, suggested that 85% of the burden occurs in about 50% of the population in the world, which amounts to about uh, 62 million cases um, in the world at the moment. And this is probably an underestimate because we... The tools that we've used to estimate that um, have not been able to pick up epilepsy um, in all its um, contexts, particularly in the rural areas. 
What would you say are the main risk factors for epilepsy in these settings? So most of the uh, burden of epilepsy occurs in rural areas, and um, the big three, I think, uh, risk factors are perinatal injuries or insults, infections, and head injury. Uh, the perinatal injuries are probably caused by um, poor obstetrical practice um, and the fact that many women don't have any antenatal care. Um, infections are um, important in some parts of the world, uh, particularly neurocystocosis in South America and some parts of um, Africa. Uh, onchocerciasis, um, in, again, in some parts of Africa, and other infections such as malaria, uh, which are endemic in many tropical areas. And head injury is also very an important cause since it occurs commonly within Africa. The difficulty is that the mortality associated with head injury is also increased um, within resource-poor countries, um, and thus it's difficult to work out what the contribution of head injury to epilepsy per se is at the moment with the data that we have available. Could you tell me how epilepsy could be treated and also how much would it cost? Well, I think the first um, issue is identifying the people with epilepsy because in many areas, particularly in the rural areas, people with epilepsy, first of all, don't know that they have epilepsy, don't know that it's a treatable or a controllable condition. Um, because the seizures are couched in traditional terms, which they're often thought to be bewitched um, or due to ancestors. And there's a considerable amount of stigma associated with it, which prevents them from coming forward to biomedical facilities for the treatment, for the diagnosis and treatment of epilepsy. Um, The cost of the treatment of epilepsy or the control of the seizures um, is actually relatively small. The World Health, the World Bank, um, as much as two decades ago, uh, suggested it was one of the most cost-effective tr- um, conditions to treat, and indeed it probably only costs somewhere between five and ten U.S. dollars per year uh, to control seizures in about 70% of the population of with epilepsy. Um, other, this mainly based on use of old drugs such as phenobarbital um, and phenytoin. Um, even with the cost, even with carbamazepine and sodium valproate, um, these costs, um, although they're much greater than those um, phenobarbital, phenobarbital and phenytoin, uh, they're still not insurmountable in some of the lower and middle income countries. If that's the case, then why is epilepsy neglected and not part of NCD strategies for developing countries in the first place? Well, I think one of the difficulties is that people don't realize the extent of the problem and the burden of disease, um, and mainly because um, a lot of people with epilepsy do reside in rural areas. Um, and the fact that many people with epilepsy do not come forward for biomedical treatment um, as such. I think a second factor is that epilepsy is a condition which seems to fall between the neurologist and the psychiatrist. So although it is embodied in some aspects of mental health policies, um, and some aspects of neurology as, uh, policies, it doesn't seem to get prominence in either. And I think it just sort of feel, falls between um, two major disciplines, really. So that sort of multidisciplinary approach is something that I, I, I take it you're recommending. Is there anything else that you think needs to happen to address this urgent global health problem? Well, I think there are a number of approaches. One is that uh, particularly uh, sensitization at c- the community level 
uh, to let people know that epilepsy is controllable and that if they do present themselves to biomedical facilities that um, there should be drugs available um, for treatment. I think the second thing at the community level is to do some task shifting to allow nurses to make the diagnosis and to start treatment in many um, areas where there's no or or few doctors available. And I think the other one is um, at the community level is the to have freely available antiepileptic drugs um, and to have a continuous supply because what happens often in health clinics is that supply runs out and this precipitates seizures um, in that context. I think at a country and a regional level, engaging with ministries of health, and as I've already mentioned, trying to get the neurologists and psychiatrists to combine um, in this initiative in trying to address the problem with, of epilepsy. At a regional level, I think that the Pan-American Health Organization has really made great strides in setting out and identifying epilepsy as a treatable or a controllable condition. And I think that also trying to reduce the risk factors. Some of these are really um, are amenable to reduction in terms of improving obstetrical care, reducing infections, particularly parasitic conditions, and also reducing head injury from road traffic accidents. And then finally, I think that there needs to be greater cooperation between the International League Against Epilepsy and the World Health Organization in terms of initiatives, and particularly the one that the World Health Organization, which has recently put out, which is the mental health gap, which I think will make great strides if it can be implemented in areas, particularly rural areas. Finally, I think that getting the epilepsy onto the non-communicable disease agenda, particularly with organizations such as the United Nations, would filter down to government to make them more aware of how important it is, hopefully thus improve the treatment of epilepsy in poorer areas. Professor Charles Newton, thank you for taking the time to speak to the Lancet podcast. Thank you. Many thanks to all the contributors this week. See you next time.